Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice brought to you by GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our senior reporter, Luke Haynes. Hello. And news editor, Nick Bostock. Hiya. Coming up, we'll be discussing the latest news affecting general practice. This week, we're looking at the workload crisis. Practices are currently working harder than ever before, and we'll be unpicking the reasons behind it, the impacts it's having, and asking what needs to happen to help GPs and practice teams. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to GP Dr. Helen Gar, who's Deputy Director of NHS Practitioner Health, the NHS health service for doctors and dentists experiencing mental health problems and addiction. We'll be discussing the impact heavy workload and the pandemic has had on GPs and NHS staff. And Helen will be providing some practical advice on what you can do if you or someone you know is struggling to cope. And finally, we'll be rounding off with a bit of good news. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So anyone listening to this who works in general practice will know that it's really hard work at the minute. Despite the fact that some of the newspapers are saying GPs are not seeing patients, practices are in fact working harder than ever. Recent figures from NHS Digital showed that GP practices delivered 4.8 million more appointments in March this year compared with February. Luke, you've been talking to lots of GPs recently about the reasons behind this rise in workload. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on? Yeah, that's right. So GPs have been telling me sort of since Easter that the volume of work in general practice has just been sort of astronomical, the worst it's ever been. It's down to a number of factors which have sort of piled on top of one another to create this unsustainable pressure. So first off, consultations, they're more numerous and they're also more complex, which is I think is yeah, one of the key um, elements of it. So one GP I spoke to said that patients seem to be more comfortable with coming forward with health issues since sort of drop in COVID cases. Um, so practices are seeing more people, but um, some of these patients, because they've been storing up issues during the pandemic, they're presenting with more complex issues and that's taking sort of far longer than your average 10 minutes to deal with. In particular, GPs are saying that there's been a huge increase in the number of mental health consultations, which can be less straightforward to deal with. So overall, um, practitioners just saying to me that they're feeling outgunned at the minute and um, unable to deal with the demand. Another huge element around this tsunami of workload is the interaction between primary care and secondary care. So as we know, secondary care services have been operating at reduced capacity during the pandemic with some disruption. And this has created a huge backlog in secondary care, but this is spilling over into primary care with patients who are unable to access hospital care going to GPs to seek help. So this means that GPs are having to manage more patients and, um, and provide care, which is leading to more consultations yet. GPs are also having to chase up appointments and expedite appointments because of the backlog. And practice teams have also said that hospitals are dumping work on them or, or being asked to run tasks that they wouldn't usually do in normal times, such as sort of blood tests or prescribing medication in some instances. One GP told me that they were appreciative of the pressures in secondary care, but it was really hard to deal with it on top of a primary care backlog of work. Yeah. And how is the vaccine campaign affecting workload? So GPs have been doing sort of a sterling uh, job vaccinating patients. I think it's about three quarters of all jabs have been administered by GP sites. But obviously this is impacting workload where practices or PCNs haven't got separate teams to deliver the vaccines. On top of this, GPs and uh, GP staff are also uh, fielding lots of questions around the jab, particularly around the Oxford jab. And that's to do around the sort of blood clot concerns that there were. Um, so people have been ringing up with sort of headaches and other symptoms uh, just to check with their GP that everything's okay. So this is adding to the workload and the sort of the amount of 
contact GPs are having with patients. So as you can tell, GPs have got a lot on their plate at the minute and with Croft sort of back and PCN work, everything is just piling up and GPs are telling me that in some cases they're working sort of 70 hour weeks just to keep up with demand. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, bleak picture at the minute. Nick, I mentioned the number of appointments that GPs have had. Uh, well, practices as a whole have been have been doing um, this year. But what else are the statistics telling us about workload in general practice? We've had some eye-watering statistics in recent days about general practice, both in terms of the amount of work there is to do and the numbers of GPs there are to get it done. In a nutshell, workload has spiked because of the pandemic and for other reasons. Numbers of patients keep growing and GP numbers have flatlined. So if you're thinking about it like a pie chart, the workload pie is way bigger and every GP in the country has been handed a larger slice. One of the bits of data we've had recently relates to numbers of consultations. So these, um, these numbers aren't a perfect measure of pressure on general practice, but they are a good indicator. GP practice delivered 28.5 million consultations in March alone. So to put that in context, that's 20% up from the month before. And it's the highest total for a single month since October 2019. I mean, it's also worth uh, bearing in mind that even though this figure sounds massive, it's probably a big underestimate because NHS Digital admits that its statistics don't count telephone consultations fully. So we also know from RCGP data that not only are consultations up compared to pre-pandemic levels, practices are dealing with a huge surge in clinical administrative workload. So there's all this evidence that workload is growing, but unfortunately some of the other figures we're seeing show that the workforce hasn't grown in anything like the same way. There are actually fewer full-time equivalent GPs than there were five years ago. And not only that, partners who are some of the most experienced GPs, you know, not just working in, but running practices, are being lost at a frightening rate. And in the meantime, the patient population is growing. And that's a key reason why it feels so hard working in general practice at the moment. This combination of factors means that numbers of GPs per patient are actually falling through the floor. We reported last week that in the last five years, there's been a 10% drop in the number of GPs per patient. So there's more work to do at the moment. And for every GP and other member of practice staff out there, the share of workload they have to take on is bigger. So clearly things can't go on like this. What needs to happen? I mean, workload obviously is one of the big things that GPs have been discussing at the LMC's conference this week. Have there been any sort of suggestions about what might need to be done to tackle this problem? I think part of the solution is going to have to be a big injection of funding. We heard from the NHS Confederation this week that there needs to be a major overhaul of the GP funding model, in part to address the problems that have been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. And Richard Vautry, who's the BMA GP committee chair, has this week called for a major sort of long term commitment from the government to invest in general practice to try and address some of the backlog. I think that there's also a debate at the uh, at the local medical committee's conference this week, which is going to look at some of the solutions. And I think part of it is going to have to be around a drive to properly capture practice activity to, to really demonstrate the kind of workload that practices are delivering. Because I mean, like I touched on earlier, the things like you know measuring GP appointments uh, don't fully capture the kind of activity that's going on in general practice. And I think probably the same can be said of the data that's collected separately by the Royal College of GPs. So that collects a lot of information around the kind of the clinical administrative workload and some of the consultations, but none of the data sets that we have at the moment 
provide a full picture of just the, the level of pressure on general practice. And I think collecting that information is probably key to persuading, you know, politicians and government and perhaps NHS England to, to deliver the kind of investment that general practice needs to turn things around. I mean, it might also need sort of more immediate solutions as well, mightn't it? I mean, the, the quaff was basically suspended for all of last year because of the pandemic. I mean, it kind of reared its, part of it reared its its head for a bit. Uh, and then the whole lot was just suspended. And, you know, GPs I've spoken to certainly have said that in the current situation, even trying to, to begin to get back on top of what's going on with the quaff is going to be virtually impossible. So we might start seeing moves like that to just as immediate steps to cut workload. Do you think that's possible? I think that's right. And I think that's the kind of thing that GPs will want to see happen. I mean, Luke's talked about primary care networks and some of the workload involved in those. And I think, um, you know, earlier in the pandemic, there were more efforts to sort of shut down some of the, the workload involved with primary care networks, as well as things like appraisal and revalidation and those sorts of things. There was a motion being discussed this week at the LMC's committee conference, which was talking about uh, suspending appraisals for a longer period of time. And I think, um, you know, the RCGP and the BMA early in the pandemic called for some of those measures to be sustained, those kinds of efforts to reduce the administrative burden on general practice for a longer period of time. And I think that there needs to be a recognition that some of those measures that were adopted during the worst of the pandemic, during the peaks, are not really something that, that can be limited to that period of time. They need to go on for longer to give GPs a bit more elbow room to cope with the kind of pressures that they're going to be dealing with as the, uh, the the sort of backlog of care comes through. And Luke, do you think that that's something that clinical directors, I mean, you speak a lot to clinical directors, do you think that they would want to see some kind of easing of the requirements around the network contractors as well? Yeah, I think so. I think from speaking to sort of loads of clinical directors over the last few months, I think it's very clear that they just haven't got the headspace to to be able to work on service specs and even recruitment. Recruitment is going to be such a huge part of PCNs going forward. Obviously, we know that the GP teams are hugely understaffed. And well, I know people have told me that it would make sense to pause service spec to create sort of more time for them to focus on sort of workload and patient care rather than these specifications, which I know people in the past have said uh, feel a bit tick boxy. Yeah, it would make sense to ease up on, on them and make sure their their priorities are at the right place, um, which is something that was in that NHS Confederation report. There was a line in it that just said, NHS and public expectation has to be realistic. And even though these bodies are here and sort of they're adding to the force and taking on more work, maybe now is the time to give them a bit of a, of a break and a bit of a breather. Well, the workload crisis is something that we've been writing extensively about on GP Online, and obviously we'll be continuing to cover it in the coming weeks and months you can read more of our news and analysis as well as opinion pieces about all of these issues from GPs at gponline.com. So we're joined today by Dr. Helen Gar, who's a GP in Nottingham and the Deputy Director of NHS Practitioner Health, the NHS service that supports doctors and dentists experiencing mental ill health. She's worked as a clinician and a clinical lead for the GP Health Service, which was the forerunner of NHS Practitioner Health. So she's got loads of experience of dealing with GPs and other doctors um, who are experiencing problems. Welcome to the podcast, Helen. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Um, I was hoping we could start by you explaining a little bit about what your role with NHS Practitioner Health involves 
and how you sort of became involved in the whole area of working with doctors' wellbeing. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm Deputy Director of NHS Practitioner Health, which is a free national self-referral confidential service support to support NHS staff with mental health and addiction problems. The way I came into this, and quite a personal story behind this, and I talk about this a lot, um, I came into medicine quite late. I had been a nurse before I was a doctor, so I've been around in the NHS for a long time. And then I had my children while I was at medical school and in my junior doctor years. And my son was quite sick when I was a junior doctor. He had some health problems and he had a lot of admissions to hospital. And I faced some quite significant challenges trying to work as a junior doctor with this sick child. And on the whole, people were supportive. But actually, I faced many, many unsupportive situations. So I distinctly remember a time when my son was really unwell and actually I genuinely thought he might die. And I was meant to be working a night shift. And I called in to say, my son's in hospital. I think he might die. I can't come to work. And the response I got was, we have a a service to provide. You have a duty to help us provide that service. Leave him with the nurses and come to work. And I just, it was a light bulb moment for me then when I just actually, we are in a caring profession, but why do we not care for each other? Who cares for the doctors? And that was the start of my journey, really, um, exploring and becoming interested in who who cares for the healthcare staff. And really, sadly, throughout my career, um, I've had four close colleagues who've died by suicide and actually speak to any doctor and they will tell you they know somebody who's died by suicide. Speak to your colleagues outside the NHS and they would look at you with horror if you asked them that question, do you have a colleague who has died by suicide? Yet it's almost become the norm within the NHS that we know somebody. So I'm completely driven by making sure my colleagues and our NHS staff and our doctors have the support they need to be able to be the doctors they want to be. Well, one of those forms of support is obviously NHS practitioner health. Can you explain a little bit more about who can access the service? So essentially in England, all doctors and dentists of any grade and any speciality can self-refer into our service. We are also open in England to senior leaders, grade 8D and above, who are welcome to self-refer into us. For non-doctors and dentists, grade 8D and below, they can access us via the 40 local health and wellbeing hubs that are being set up by NHS England. Anyone who accesses those hubs who's felt to have more complex needs or has a reason why they can't seek help locally are able to access NHS Practitioner Health. We've recently also supported Scotland Workforce. So now in Scotland can access us through our website, email or telephone. We're obviously in very exceptional times at the minute with the pandemic. But, you know, I've been reporting on general practice for over 15 years and I don't think I've ever known a time when it's as busy as this. I mean, the kind of the people we talk to regularly, you know, there seems to be so many cases of burnout going on and the workload just seems overwhelming, in particular since the start of this year. I mean, how is this all impacting on GPs' well-being? And have you noticed an increase in the number of GPs sort of seeking support from your service? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we know, don't we, that the figures that have just recently come out, that GPs are working far harder at the moment than they did pre-pandemic. And how is that even possible to work any harder? People will be asking. And we know that GPs have offered nearly 3 million more appointments in March just gone than they did compared to March two years ago. So GPs and, and NHS staff, they are on their knees. You're absolutely right. People are exhausted. And that's reflected in the numbers we're seeing at NHS Practitioner Health. So if we compare our numbers coming in this year to NHS Practitioner Health compared to March last year, we've seen an over 100% increase in doctors and dentists coming into us. And if we look at GPs in particular, we've seen that the GPs have always made up a large proportion of the, the doctors and the healthcare professionals we see in our service, but the numbers of GPs have also increased by over 20% during the pandemic. Right. Okay. That's a big increase, isn't it? Huge. I mean, it's obviously, you sort of alluded to this earlier in the conversation, but it's obviously, it's not just GPs this this is affecting. Oh. It's obviously all the members of the primary healthcare team and all sort of staff in the NHS. I mean, obviously GPs have access, direct access to the NHS practitioner health service, but is there enough support for other members of the team as well? Absolutely. And that's a question we get asked a lot. We initially started as the GP health service, but we are now open to all doctors and dentists. As I mentioned earlier in Scotland, we are now supporting the Scottish service. And then in England, the NHS have developed 40 local wellbeing and resilience hubs. So local hubs to support all healthcare staff. So healthcare staff can access psychological support, therapy, and the care that they need through these local wellbeing and resilience support hubs. There's 40 of them. Find out where your local support hub is through the NHS website and through the Practitioner Health website. And what what sort of problems are you seeing people kind of presenting to the service with? What kind of problems, particularly those in primary care, because obviously that's who our audience are. Overwhelmingly, anxiety, symptoms consistent with burnout, overwhelm, exhaustion. So we we pull out, we ask people to give us the, the problem that's troubling them the most when they refer themselves to us. And anxiety is the standout issue. People are anxious, they're exhausted, they're overwhelmed. Right. The other thing, the upshot of all of this is there's been an awful lot of talk from various quarters about the fact there might be a mass exodus of staff at the end of all of this because people are completely wrung out and exhausted. We reported on a a poll by the BMA that said a third of GPs were thinking about retiring early and more were thinking about cutting back their hours. From your conversations with people, do you think it's quite likely we are going to see something like this happen? And if so, what do you think needs to be done to, to stop it happening? Yeah. People are certainly in all walks of life, not just the NHS, they are re-evaluating what they want from life. The pandemic has made people take stock and re-evaluate. What we need to be looking at in the NHS and certainly what is being looked at is how can we provide that, that period of rest and recuperation, time to re- pause, to reflect, to recover. That is what people need. It's very difficult because, of course, all of the the elective work, the work that's been put on hold is all needing to restart again. So people are probably listening to this thinking, well, how on earth can we do this? It's very, very difficult. You've also asked me, how can we prevent people leaving? I think if we look back 
to the start of the pandemic, there was a huge shift and focus of looking after staff, of valuing staff. So the focus changed to make sure people had adequate food, adequate rest times, doctors' messes were put back in place. We had simulated airline lounges where people could go and have a rest where they could be looked after. That made staff feel valued. In the early days of the pandemic, we we had a lot of feedback from our doctors that they felt valued. They'd rediscovered their purpose. And I think there's huge lessons to be learned from that shift in focus to healthcare staff's well-being that happened in the early pandemic. We need to keep this up. We need to be looking at the systems so that staff are looked after. Look after the basics and don't forget kindness. It's hugely, hugely important that we remember how to be kind to each other. And we saw that in the early pandemic, we pulled together, people had each other's backs and that made a huge difference to how engaged people felt and how much they enjoyed their job. These are the things that are going to stop people leaving. Yeah, it's quite quite difficult to see how people can do some of those things though isn't it I mean that's the, the, the problem isn't it where everybody's so heads down trying to just get through the daytime there's no real headspace to think about how they might be able to invest a bit more time in in those sorts of things about looking after their colleagues and things like that but but obviously you think that's quite important it's really important for people to keep an eye out on the people they work with and make sure that they're okay absolutely and this is a culture change we're talking about isn't it and culture culture changes come from top down and bottom down and what you've just mentioned about keeping an eye on each other I talk about this a lot so this concept of changing our culture so we reach in rather than expecting people to reach out to seek support. So I've had doctors tell me that they've gone to work, they've been planning how to end their lives throughout their shift. They've gone to work with abdominal pain and they've took themselves down to A&E at the end of the day and they've had appendicitis or meningitis, yet nobody has asked them during that day, how are you? You don't look quite yourself. You don't seem to be working how you normally would. Are you okay? So this kind of culture shift, so we all reach into each other, ask how each other is, ask twice. So ask how somebody is, you're going to get the inevitable answer, I'm fine. Ask twice, how are you feeling? I've noticed you've been a bit quiet. I noticed you're staying much later at work. I noticed you're not working how you normally would. You don't seem yourself. How are you feeling? So changing that culture. So we look out for each other. We have each other's backs and we reach in. The doctors who've told me they've gone to work whilst planning how to end their lives tell me that if somebody had have just asked them how they were, it would have made a huge difference. And we do know that when we reach into each other, if we say to our colleagues, how are you doing? Do you think you need to get some support? Medical staff in particular are far more likely to seek help if they're given a nudge by one of their colleagues or friends. So if there is anybody, a GP or another member of the team listening to this and they are struggling, what sort of advice would you give them? What practical steps should they take so it's that old adage of put your own oxygen mask on first before you can look after others the number one person who's going to look out for you is yourself and often we just struggle on and on and on in the nhs until we reach breaking point we feel shame about seeking help we feel shame about taking time off work because that is not the culture we we have learned. So my number one piece of advice is seek 
help. There is no shame in seeking help. It does not mean you are weak to seek help. In fact, it's the opposite. And we are here for you at NHS Practitioner Health. There's lots of other resources out there. The NHS Our People Looking After You Too website has fantastic resources on there. The BMA, they offer 24-7 counselling. You do not have to be a member of the BMA to access this. So seek help. Doctors often say the hardest thing was making that first phone call or filling in that registration form for NHS Practitioner Health. But once they've done that first step, they're so relieved that they're not going this alone. And so if um, a GP did contact NHS Practitioner Health and you said they have to fill in a registration form, what what happens after that? How does it work? So there's lots of different ways you can, a, a GP or a doctor can access us. There's a registration form on our website. There's a lovely big button, say access us here, click on the button. You can email us or you can give us a call, but it's self-referral only. We don't accept referrals from other organisations. You must self-refer. When you contact us, what happens is you'll then be given access to an app, a confidential app that's absolutely fantastic that allows you to pick the clinician of your choice that you would like to see anytime, any place, anywhere. So at the moment, most of our consultations are happening virtually. You are offered then an initial assessment with the doctor of your choice. And all of our clinicians are either GPs with a special interest in mental health, psychiatrists or a mental health nurse. You get a 90 minute, up to 90 minutes assessment with the clinician of your choice. And that clinician remains your clinician for the duration of your time with practitioner health. They're there to love, to support you, to hold you and treat you. At the end of that initial assessment, you will, with your clinician, you will talk about a treatment plan. And that treatment plan might involve case management. So just as you would see your GP or a psychiatrist, appointments it might involve treatment. So we offer talking therapies, CBT, brief intervention psychotherapy. It might involve joining one of our many groups. So we have some fantastic groups. We have addiction groups. We have groups for parents with children with complex medical needs. We've just launched our leaders group and neurodiversity group. Lots and lots of groups, a whole host of treatment options. But I think the most important thing to know is people worry about confidentiality. We are a confidential service. And the other really important thing for people to know is we do not judge. We understand. That's great. Um, one, One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about was this whole idea of resilience. There's been lots of talk about training clinicians to be more resilient. But I mean, obviously, having some resilience to deal with a particularly uh, particular spike in demand, a busy month or two is one thing. But there comes a point, surely, when it's just too much. You can't be resilient in the face of what people are having to deal with. So I just kind of wondered whether or not you think the idea of resilience is a useful thing or whether you think it's just a way of almost shifting the focus onto the individual rather than the system or the NHS doing what it needs to do to support people. Yeah, I agree. That's a great question. And actually, within the NHS particularly, resilience has become almost a dirty word. So resilience is twofold. Resilience needs to come from system change without question. But I think that there's things that individuals can do. So I like to think of it as an analogy like PPE for the mind. So things we can do, we can put on our own psychological PPE. 
to help us cope with what's going on at the moment. And I like to think of resilience as um, not being able to cope with more and more and more and be able to cope with overwhelming demands, but about having the energy to find a better way. Before we move on, I just want to highlight some useful resources for anyone who's struggling with stress, anxiety or burnout at the minute. We'll put the links for these in the description for the show, along with details on how to access NHS Practitioner Health. But I just wanted to highlight that NHS Practitioner Health has a range of expert speaker webinars on its website, covering everything from mindfulness to managing stress and dealing with insomnia. You can find all of these at practitionerhealth.nhs.uk. And we've also got a number of resources and guides on our own website at gponline.com forward slash wellbeing, including an article this week on how to deal with burnout. So we've just now got time for our GP good news section, where we hope to highlight some positive stories from the world of general practice. In future episodes, this will be your chance to send in any good news stories that you'd like us to mention. We know there are plenty of GPs and other staff in general practice doing amazing things, both in their jobs and in their spare time. So if there's anything that you'd like to share about initiatives in your area or staff in your team that are making a difference, then please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. But for this week, Nick is going to talk us through some of the stats that show just what an incredible job general practice has done rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine. The fact that from next week, we'll be able to meet friends and families inside and hug other people is in no small part down to the work of primary care teams across the UK. So, Nick, what's the latest on the COVID-19 vaccine stats? It's safe to say that general practice has done an an exceptional job and has probably gone further than anyone could possibly have imagined in terms of vaccinating the UK population since the first jabs in, uh, in December 2020. Three quarters of jabs in England, at least, have been delivered by teams led by GP practices. Uh, So, you know, we're now at a point where 35.4 million people have had a first dose of of COVID-19 vaccine, uh, and that's 67% of the UK adult population who've had their first dose. In terms of second doses, uh, just over a third of the UK adult population has had uh, a second dose, meaning they're fully vaccinated against covid the good thing about this as well is it's it's there's a take-up's been exceptionally high for a vaccination program there's been plenty of publicity around uh, vaccine hesitancy but uh, across the board the take-up has been has been exceptional uh, if you look at ccg level in many cases ccgs have vaccinated 9 out of 10 or more of their entire population aged 45 and over with a first dose in terms of second doses in some CCG areas, well, there are at least one or two who've uh, who've actually achieved two doses uh, for more than half of their entire adult population. So to have achieved that by this stage is a, is a fairly exceptional thing. Nick regularly updates our COVID-19 vaccine tracker, which you can find on our website. We also have a regularly updated map and tables about how every CCG in England is progressing with their COVID-19 vaccines. Well, that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website at gponline.com. Thank you very much for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke. And a really big thank you to Dr. Helen Gar for taking the time to talk to me this week. We'd love to know what you think about the podcast, so please do get in touch on Twitter at News or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. If you've enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks. See you next time.